Hello. Welcome to Why Not Both. My name is Pam Schaefer, and I'm a musician and therapist in Los Angeles. Why Not Both is all about how our multiple passions inform our identity. And this season, we are brought to you by Under the Radar Magazine and produced by Laura Studeris. If you like what you hear, please make sure to like us and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform and come spend time with us on social media. We are at WNB the podcast, and that is both on Instagram and on Twitter. This week, I got to interview Mara Wilson, who you might know as the faceless old woman who secretly lives inside your home from Welcome to Night Vale, or potentially as Matilda from your favorite childhood movie, or as maybe the most hilarious person on Twitter, but I might be biased. I think she's pretty great. I hope you enjoy our interview. So hi, Mara. Hi. Thank you so much for having me here. <laughs> thank you so much for coming. Welcome to Why Not Both. Uh, the first question that I ask everyone is, what do you do? And is there a better question to ask you? Oh, yeah. Um, I think I think what do you do is at least a bit more open-ended than the question that I hate, which is, what are you working on? <laughs> That's such an LA question. Yes. And New York, New York too. That was something that I heard all the time in New York. I would dread hearing that when I was going to parties because it, it felt like there couldn't be any downtime. Mm. And one thing that I feel like at least in New York, at least in LA, you can kind of say, oh, well, I'm working on this project to like something to better yourself as an individual. Like there were times where, where people would say like in New York, I couldn't be like, well, I'm taking a really fun kickboxing class. People wouldn't be, they just wouldn't care. They'd be like, okay, but what are you working on job-wise? Whereas in LA, I can be like, well, I'm taking a class in carpentry. And isn't that awesome? And they'll be like, yeah, that is awesome. So they'll at least kind of humor you. (laughs) In New York, (laughs) I felt like it was, it was much more, it was much more about, you know, oh, okay, well, that's, that's odd that if you're not talking about an actual job, I felt, I definitely felt more pressure career-wise there, but I, I mean, it's. It's it was at a hundred percent in New York. It's still at like seventy five, eighty percent in LA. So <laughs> well, and I think like it's interesting that you said that because it's almost like in LA, part of the work is also working on yourself. But then in a yeah. way, working on yourself becomes almost like another job. It does, and there's very much a chiller than thou kind of thing in LA, where where you have to talk about the the way that you are making yourself a better person. And there's mm. like one thing that I realized when I when I was thinking about moving back to LA is that I'm always on a self-improvement kick. Got it. And I think that is a very LA thing because I think that that I'm a very, I, I tend to come across as very New York, but one thing that I didn't like, especially about being in New York is I felt a lot of people there were sort of nihilistic and they just kind of accepted, they accepted their cynicism. They accepted their, obviously not like clinical depression, but kind of like like pop culture, pop, <laughs> pop psychology kind of depression, you know, you know what yeah, I mean? The, the memes of depression. Exactly. Just the, just the sort of, they, they accepted just that. And I, I didn't want that. I didn't want to, to, to be like that. I didn't want to be a, a cynical, sarcastic person. So right. I think that that was something, but at the same time, I do feel like it gets, it gets weirdly competitive in LA to be how chill you are and how spiritual you are. Right. The whole like good vibes only. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The, the working on yourself kind of thing. Right. That becomes a competition in itself. So it can't even necessarily be like, I'm just doing this thing for fun. It has yeah, to be. Yeah, because then it's like, is it fun for enrichment? Exactly. Exactly. And so that that is definitely something. It all feels very goal-oriented. And maybe in other places it's not like that, but I feel like in New York and L.A. it definitely is. Well, and I wonder about, like, because talking to some of my friends who raise children, I say that so clinically. I'm like, yes, my, <laughs> my friends who have these miniature humans. Yes. I think they're called parents. Yes. <laughs> some of them grew them inside themselves and... Uh, some of them filed paperwork and applications and and got them from from other people who grew them inside themselves. Why and some am people, I like yeah. This? <laughs> I feel like in a way though, there's the same kind of thing with parenting now, where every activity it's very competitive, and even the leisure time is structured in a way, yeah, and I, that we're doing that to ourselves as adults. I really hope. I really hope that that's kind of dying out. I really hope that millennials have kind of are seeing what damage that does because we also saw how a lot for a lot of people going to college didn't lead to anything but debt. Right. So, and, and how college is, you don't necessarily need to go to college or you don't need to go to the most expensive college or the most, this college or the most that's that college. It, it should just be about 
a good fit. College should just be about a good fit and it should just be about job training. And sometimes you don't necessarily need that for job training or sometimes you only need a specific kind of thing for job training. And so I do think that millennials are going to be looking at college in a very different way. And I do think that we aren't going to be doing the the wild like number of activities and and padding right. that I think a lot of our our parents really believed would be the way forward. Well, and that emphasis on productivity almost that you mentioned yeah. about New York, like I feel like that kind of permeated our childhood as well. Well, and that's something that I because I, I definitely am. People are always telling me they're like, "You're not the things that you do," and I'm just like, "Yes, I am." But I guess that's <laughs> that also probably has to do with the fact that I I started working when I was five. So I, I mean, I'm a, I was a, a former child actor. I still, I, I still don't quite know how to describe the things that I do. I guess I'm a writer. I, I, I write stuff. I, I do voiceovers. Uh, I do, I'm a storyteller. I do a lot of different kinds of things. I'm a mental health activist. I, I travel a lot for that lately. I've been doing that. Uh, so there's a lot of different things that I do. I think, but yeah, I've, I've kind of been working. I've either been like working or in school on and off for a really long time. Right. So, so I do sort of measure myself by my productivity. And I think it's really hard for me when people are like, you are not your productivity. Cause I'm like, well, You're yes, like, I am. I exactly. <laughs> I have been, I have been for a very long time. I have been. Yeah. And thinking about that, it's funny to me that you said, oh, well, I'm kind of a writer. I was like, well, you kind of have a book. <laughs> Okay, but some of my friends have have three books. Some of my friends are on the New York Times bestseller list. Some right. of my friends are, you know, book award winners, things like that. I was actually, I was I was dating a uh, an astrophysicist for a while because uh, that's my type. I date nerds, I guess. Hey, and, I, I and, too have dated an yeah. astrophysicist. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> and she was she and I were talking about it, and I was saying, you know, I mean, I have friends who are writers on Saturday Night Live, and I have friends who, you know, are. are you know, New York Times bestsellers, and I have friends who are this and that, and and I was just like, yeah, I feel, and I feel like I'm kind of a fraud compared to a lot of these people when mm. it comes to writing. And she goes, yeah, I feel that too. And I said, you're an astrophysicist. You are what people think of when they think of a smart, accomplished person. <laughs> and she said, well, yes, but some of my friends have Nobel Prizes. And I thought, Sad wow, trombone. yeah, there's always <laughs> there's always going to be somebody who's, you know, who's who's better at at feeling more of an imposter than you are, I guess. I, that's what I was thinking is that it's like we all fall victim to imposter syndrome, no matter how accomplished mm-hmm. we are, which might be like that that paradox of why people are like, oh, you're not your accomplishments. Yeah, because no matter how accomplished you are, there there is someone who's going to be more accomplished than you. There is. And they're probably even more full of doubt. Yeah, I remember reading that like well, Tony Kushner was working on one of his plays. Somebody looked over his shoulder and he had written in the margins, um, "You are worthless and you're going to die in the gutter." And I was like, "It's it's Tony Kushner. It's it's you know who who oh, no. I couldn't believe." And I was like, "How could he say that to himself?" Oh, I'm like, be nice to our friend Tony. Exactly, exactly. Come on, Tony. Oh. Yeah. Like that? Oh no! I just want to give him pats. Nice. Yeah. Pats. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, I'm curious what you do as a mental health advocate. I mean, I'm biased because I'm yeah. a mental health person. Yeah. I can words today. Just yes. Fine. Yes. I, I mean, I do a lot of. I think I do a lot of things with destigmatization and and talking about mental health. Uh, I've been giving a lot of speeches on mental health recently, which mm. has been great, and I've really loved doing it. I've, I've loved reaching out and, and talking about it and talking about my own experiences, which is something that's really important to me because I know that for me, the thing that really got me through my mental health issues and my struggles and, and got me diagnosed with OCD and related disorders when I was a kid was learning about other people who had it. Mm. So I know that depictions in the media and depictions, accurate depictions in the media, that is, and books and people talking about it, that was really what made me feel comfortable about being able to to do it and being able to talk about it. So I think that that is incredibly important. And that's something that I feel like I kind of have a responsibility to do because I do have a platform and I'm not super famous, but I am somebody that people might recognize. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important for me to be able to go out and, and say it and they can be like, Hey, there's somebody vaguely familiar talking about something. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so I think that that's, you know, and, and a lot of people who are more famous than, than me aren't going to that more, a lot of people who are more famous than I am, aren't going to do that. They aren't going to sort of take the risk, but I don't have 
as much to lose, I think. So, <laughs> so but I also wish that they would. And so I, I do a lot of talking about it. I talk about my experiences, but I also talk a lot about my opinions of it, which mm-hmm. are things like, like uh, people shouldn't be discouraged from going on medication, but also medication isn't always the best way for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, things like that, that, that mental health needs to be taken as seriously as physical health. Mm-hmm. That um, that we we need to, and this is something that I feel like I've been kind of growing and learning about too. Is that because I've known a lot of people in the past few years who've been very frustrated with how they feel like mental health mental health movements have been focusing mostly on things like anxiety and depression, mm-hmm. and ignoring things like and, and every now and then they'll talk about bipolar disorder or something like that, but they've ignored things like borderline personality disorder. Right. Or or schizophrenia and related related disorders and and uh, and you know other personality disorders and other things like that. There's those are still very very much stigmatized. And they can also become almost like we were talking about with like pop psychology. Like yes. for instance, now if someone's like, oh, I didn't like the person I was dating, their friends sometimes will rally around them, and go, oh, they were such a narcissist. Yeah, things and that's like something that, where that it just gets like thrown about where you're like, yeah, it's not actually what that word meant. Yeah, and I feel like I've and I feel like I have I have like and I'm I'm think feel like in the past. I've sort of I've done that as well. I have I have believed that. I have thought that. I've been sort of and 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 I feel like that I've learned a lot about that in the past few years. That's been very and that's really wrong. And I it's something that I want to correct and I want to learn more about and I want to call more attention to because these people are suffering as well. When you said that people who were more famous like had more to lose. And I find that so interesting and also so relevant because you're like, yeah, people need to advocate for this. Because I'm like, if someone who is really famous had a physical illness, yeah, they wouldn't have something to quote, like, people can't see me because it's a podcast. Uh, I'm air quoting lose. Yeah, it's uh, true. And so it's like, you don't have to lose stature in your community, whether it's an arts community or professional community, by talking about mental illness because it's... It would be yeah. like blaming someone for a physical illness. It is. I do feel like they they do question your judgment when you when you do talk about mental illness because I have had people question my judgment and say, well, she talks about her mental illnesses all the time. Maybe this is you know this has to do with her being mentally ill, etc. And I have had people say that. And what I kind of want to say to them is that yes, I have mental illnesses, but I am aware of them. Right. And I I treat them. And a lot of the people that. And, you know, sometimes it'll be because they don't agree with me politically or they don't they don't like my opinions or something like that. And I want to say, like, look, uh, probably some of the people that you are talking to as well also have mental health issues, but they aren't facing them. They aren't dealing with them. Right. That is that is the most important thing that to, to learn them and to face to, to learn about them, to face them, to deal with them. So that is that is something that is is really important. And a lot of people just aren't. A lot of people right. aren't doing that. And it, it can be hard to. So I was going to say, it's not, it's not easy. It's not, it definitely isn't. It's been hard for me as well. I think that that's like, it's interesting being a therapist and having people come in and be like, oh, so this is going to make me feel better. And I try to explain it that it's kind of similar to like either physical therapy or a workout. Exactly. Like you might actually feel like someone is beating you with sticks. Right. (laughs) But (laughs) the good news is that afterwards you'll feel better. There just might be a beating about the head with sticks portion. Exactly. I, I, don't, I don't actually hit people with sticks. Yeah, you don't. Practice. Um, but well, there's, I feel like it's, yeah, I mean, I feel like it's like that. I feel like there's, and and I also think that there there are times where, I, like, I have to keep, I have to keep my mental health, I have to keep my boundaries as well. So there are times where, you know, I, I will talk about my mental health, but only to a certain group of people or something mm. like that. Or I will, I, I will not talk publicly about mental health things that I'm still processing, mm. stuff like that. I think that there needs to be, and some people are very comfortable talking about, like I have friends uh, who will tweet when they have a panic attack. Right. And, and, uh, and that is something that is good for them. And that's something that it's a way for them to, to communicate with people and to normalize it. I don't think that I could do that myself. And I think that that's, it's good. I think it's also important to know your own boundaries. That's exactly, I was going to ask you about that, about like where to draw the line for yourself so Mm -hmm. that you're advocating for others and you're giving others information, which I'm so glad you're passionate about, but also protecting yourself so that you can process a lot of this. Yeah, there's, it's sort of a, it's kind of a wait and see thing, I think. Like you, you usually wait, like wait a few weeks, see how you feel about it before you share it. Don't immediately do that's that's a thing that I, I usually do. And if there's any doubt, then it's it's a it's wait and see and when in doubt, do nothing kind of got it. You know, those are platitudes for a reason. So <laughs> so it's um yeah, that's 
that's kind of what I've learned. And, and also, yeah, not everybody understands mental illness and not everybody understands these things. And so you kind of have to keep in mind, like, okay, some people are definitely going to understand this. Some people are not. Got it. How does that overlap with your writing? I think that, I mean, I I definitely think it's interesting because I I do think that writing, the, the tone that I take in my writing is, is very sort of neurotic. And I wonder sometimes if I'm like, if there is something sort of, you know, non neurotypical in like the way that I'm writing with, with, uh, like a lot of times I feel like I, I always come up with the worst possible scenarios <laughs> and, and things like that. And, and so I do feel like my writing, I do feel like it, it affects my writing, like my mental health and my mental illness definitely affects my writing. Um, I also think that, I don't know, I think that it can be hard sometimes because I feel like if I weren't such a, if I weren't such a perfectionist, I would have written way more already. Mm. If I, if I believed more in myself and more in my writing, I would be writing all of the time every day. And I, I write, I write most days, but I don't write every day. And a lot of it isn't stuff. And that's the thing too, is people will, will talk about, people are always asking like, what's your process? Like, what's your process? Like, and that just feels so silly to me because it feels like, because, because diff- everybody has a different process. Mm-hmm. I do think that making a habit of doing a creative thing is a really good idea, but also everybody's habit looks different. Right. Like, I was I was speaking to another guest that a friend of mine had suggested I work on music for mm-hmm. 15 minutes a day. Yeah. And I actually would say that I do nail that most yeah. days. And that most days I actually work more than 15 minutes. Yeah. But on days that I can only do 15 minutes, it has like assuaged some of that guilt that it yeah. sounds almost like you're speaking to where it's like, well, am I a writer or a musician if I'm not doing it every yeah. day? And what does that look like? Right. So even putting that little like, well... Yeah, like that little drop in there, kind of like, it kind of makes me feel better and is like, oh, you know, I didn't have as much time maybe today, but I'm still a musician. I still worked on that one yeah. piece, and like it, it does. But I feel like asking. I mean, it's it's kind of like when you ask people for their workout routines, mm-hmm. you're not taking your own your the differences between your body and theirs, and mm-hmm. your your body chemistry and your genetics and and these kinds of things. So maybe it might work for you, but also maybe not. Right. And also you don't know what you do like to do and what you don't like to do I with your body. I definitely tried to do a YouTube workout that was supposed to tone your thighs and all it did was make my thighs much bigger. <laughs> <laughs> they, were, they were very yeah. firm. Yeah. But they were very large. Yeah. So, so yeah. And there's some where I'm just like, this moves too quickly. I don't like this. Yeah. Or there's, or, or I'm just like, this isn't the kind of fun, this isn't the kind of fun thing for me. Like yeah. I'm not you know, I'm not really into this. No. So that's something that I think, you know, you have to keep in mind, like, okay, what's, what's fun for me and what isn't and what's, what's good for me and what isn't. And, and that, that kind of, that you have to take that into account when you're having it. And I do think having it, making it a habit is a very good idea, but, but people, when people ask like, what's your process, what's your process? I'm like, it's different on different days. And I don't think you should romanticize the process. I agree. And I think about kind of like, how how to define yourself by where your time and energy goes yeah that's something i think about a lot too i well that's something i struggled with a lot recently because i'm kind of like especially since i had uh issues with i've been having issues with chronic illness i'm kind of like i've had a lot of questions of how to how to define myself because mm. a lot of things that i used to to have to define myself have changed in the past mm. few years because I couldn't, I couldn't socialize as much as I wanted to. I couldn't, for a while, I couldn't write as much as I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of like, well, okay, what does that mean? Because that's, that's who I am. I'm an extroverted person who talks a lot and writes a lot. And you're like, wait a second. So what am I, so what am I if I'm not those things? Yeah. And, and it, it's, it's hard. It's really hard to do that. Well, and some of it also, it sounded like it looped back in my brain, at least to like productivity of like yeah. the things that you're used to doing and especially from a young age working. Mm-hmm. It's like, why do we tend to define ourselves by productivity or by what brings in money? Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I do have friends who are like, oh, well, that's capitalism talking. And I'm like, yeah, but sometimes I don't feel like I would be particularly useful in a non-capitalist society either. Like, <laughs> you know, I, but the thing is that I do, I do like, like my favorite thing in the world is making myself useful. Mm-hmm. I love making myself useful. I love helping people. I love being mm-hmm. like, let me help. You know, I always feel like the, you know, like, like the, the, like the, the little sister on a project who is like being told that I'm too little to, to help with something. And I'm like, no, I'm not. And you're like, I can do it. I yeah. Feel, I feel like you and I would be like. 
I guess if like life were a dandy campaign, we'd be like the helper bards. We'd be like, yeah, well, sing your song and entertain you. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> like, or like, yeah, the helper to like, yeah, I was gonna say like, like the helper to the healer or something like. You can't actually do much yourself, but you can like you can carry the pack. Exactly. Yeah. You're like I got your bag. Yeah, that's that's definitely something. That's that's kind of yeah. And it's funny. I feel like I see that in my like in my nibblings as well. Yep. You know, my yep. my nieces and nephews. Mm-hmm. I I feel like they're they're all very much like that. That's so funny. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah, I think about what you know we tend to quote contribute to society, and I was just like, oh. Well, if you can't write and you can't socialize as much, then people sometimes might have to come and care for you. Yeah. And that might be hard, too, to have yeah. other people care for you. That is. That is really, that is very hard, I think. I, I Especially when you, it's weird, all these definitions of yourself change, because, like, I considered myself an independent person. And then it was like, oh, shit, I really don't feel well. And, I mean, my health is better these days, but but it was like, shit, I don't feel well. Uh, I can't cook today. Mm-hmm. I can't cook for myself today. Mm-hmm. What am I going to do? And yeah. then, yeah, and you have to be reliant on other people or like, like I had a, like I, I, cause you know, my, my blood pressure got low and I, I was bending down too much while I was uh, shopping for presents for my nieces and nephews at the bookstore and I passed out. And I had to, I had to call, I had to call my friend and his husband to see if either of them could come pick me up and take me home (laughs) because they lived nearby. And thankfully one of them did. And he, and he like, and it was such an LA thing because I was just lying in the bookstore on the floor and people were just kind of walking by being like, okay, you do you. I love that in LA, probably people just thought you were fine. And yeah, just, like having a moment. Exactly that I was just elevating my legs and with like just floor. communing with the floor. Yeah, but yeah, I had my friends. You know, I had my friend take me home, and and he like made sure that I was okay. And but it's hard. It's hard to kind of figure out. It's hard to know like oh, okay, what can I do? And and who you know who am I when I'm not being this person? And I don't know. I saw a doctor this summer in the UK, uh, and she t- she was telling me because uh, I, I was having like I just had like an upset stomach or something while I was mm-hmm. traveling in London, and she was like, and she was like, you need to kind of accept yourself as a person who has health problems or something like that. And I was like, and I was like, right, because you are not your thoughts. And she goes, mm. she goes, I'm not my thoughts. And she goes, well, the thing is, there is no I. And I was like. Okay. Damn, UK doctor. Yeah, exactly. And she was like really beautiful too. So like, and it's funny because that week I also met another doctor and he was like really smart and cocky and, and, and like, I would, I would, I was talking about things and he would just be like, well, I don't know about that. And I was like, and whereas she was like really like warm and spiritual and like Mm -hmm. beautiful. And I was just kind of like, these are like my two types. Like somebody that I can argue with, but also somebody who's like this beautiful, like wonderful healer type. Those are like the opposite sides of the spectrum of like, of like the types of people that I'm interested in. That is so funny. You're like, oh, I got, I got, I got like the smart, I got like the, the smart Alec, like, like, you know, the smart, the smart cocky type where I'm just like, I'm going to challenge you on everything you say. And we're going to have this back and forth banter. And then, and then there was this other one where it was just like, where it was just like, you are going to tell me things that changed my life probably. Yeah, I don't like, know. You're just going to casually tell me really important spiritual lessons when I maybe had indigestion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it also didn't hurt that she was beautiful, but you know. There you go. There you go. Yeah, like what you were saying that's interesting in regards to chronic illness. And I hadn't mm-hmm. thought about that because I haven't talked to any guests about that yet. Yeah. But it's a redefinition of yourself, which especially as someone who enjoys doing multiple things would be incredibly challenging to redefine yourself as someone who not has diminished capacity, but maybe can't direct their energy in the way that they had thought that they were going to on the time frame they thought they were going to. Yeah, there's a lot of, I think, internalized ableism that, you know, society kind of puts into us too. That's that's definitely a big thing. I think that, and that's something that I had to, that I've kind of had to struggle with, you know, myself and... And that sort of idea of like, you know, I can't contribute enough. I can't do this. And it's just, and that is a ridiculous metric. And again, these are things that I'm still struggling with every day. So sometimes I feel like I absolutely have a hold on them. And sometimes I feel like I don't. Right. Yeah. Right. The leaf blowers have returned. (laughs) (laughs) My old nemesis. Hold for leaf blowers. Yeah. Um. I don't think you can you hear think? them that much. I mean, it's it's kind of, I think it's kind of a nice ambient noise, but that's just me. 
You can get some room tone later. There we go. We can. That would be really funny if I just add like rainforest noises. <laughs> yeah. Um. So we were talking about internalized ableism. Mm-hmm. So I realized when you were talking about that, that people in the audience might not understand mm-hmm. what that is. I yes. do feel like internalized ableism isn't really something that I am that qualified to talk about, though. So it's something that I'm kind of learning more about myself. Gotcha. Yeah. And I think that's important to acknowledge, like you were talking about. That yeah. You're like, oh, if I haven't learned about or processed something. Yeah. Probably probably best to give it a moment. Yeah. There's And there's a lot of other people out there who, who are a lot of disability advocates who have a lot more to say about it. Cool. Yeah, like... There was something that you said when you were talking about being useful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was talking with another friend about, like, how do you know that you are loved if you're not useful to someone? Yeah, that's a really interesting, that's a really interesting point. I don't know. I, I mean, I do think that people express love in different ways. I think that, you know, a lot of people need to be told that they're loved. And, and you know, I mean at the risk of getting into love languages. Um, I, I do think though that people, yeah, I do think that, that definitely people need to, the way people, people express love and the way that people accept the expression of love is, is very different. I think, I, I don't know, but yeah, I think that a lot of it, it does involve, you know, making yourself, I don't know, maybe letting people know that you're available and letting them know that you can help them and, and trying to do that. I don't know. I just know that like, like, one of my favorite things ever and like one of the things that makes me feel best is like like being a friend yenta mm-hmm. bringing like two friends mm-hmm. like i recently i recently introduced two musician friends and that i knew would get along and now they're like they personality wise they're like perfect together Aww. friends wise like they're not they're not dating they're both married um and and one's straight and one's gay so you know that wasn't gonna happen anyway as, as a fellow friend yenta and i think yeah. we we quite accidentally got friend yenta. yeah we did we totally did yeah <laughs> Yeah, we, we did. And I was just like, oh, yeah, the, I, I like the second I met you, I was like, oh, yeah, this is very much someone that I, I would want to be friends with. Yeah. 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 And I was just like, oh, hey, I got you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, because thinking about like the usefulness when you were talking about that you had worked since you were five. Yeah. I was, I was trying to put myself in that frame of mind of... What that would be like, because I remember being valued for being smart. Yeah. And for being in some ways, like, either charming or entertaining. Like, yeah. being cute. Well, that's, I had that too, you know? And I think that after a while, I kind of resented the idea of being cute because it felt almost condescending to me. Mm-hmm. I felt like, uh, because I felt like I I was sort of... I don't know. I liked I liked feeling like I was more empowered. And, and so when people would say, you're so cute, it felt like they were dismissing me like they were mm-hmm. they were thinking that I was too young and it was taking some of the power away from me mm. so I didn't I didn't like that and then but cute is kind of a superpower in itself <laughs> and then and then once I hit puberty and and you know which was like a natural disaster to me it, that then I felt like I'd lost a superpower that I didn't know I had oh. so it was this really kind of weird complicated relationship with with the word cute and with the idea of cuteness and beauty and all of these things and things that I'm still working out uh but yeah, I also think that it's important for me to acknowledge that I was working really hard, but so many other people were working really hard too. Like mm-hmm. I wouldn't have done any of the things I did if if I hadn't had, you know, my mother taking care of me, mm-hmm. if I hadn't had her, you know, driving me to appointments and, and flying up to San Francisco or out to Chicago or New York with me and I, I, nothing would have gotten done. And right. so that's something that I feel like I really need to to acknowledge and all the, and after she died, you know, all the different nannies and people, caretakers and different people that we had there taking care of me as well. So, so, and, but it is kind of strange to me now. I like, I look back on it and I think like, oh, the first time I lived in a country without my parents, like a different country without my parents, I was, um, I think eight or nine, you know? And I mean, I think I still had like my grandmother there, although she wasn't always the nicest, so, you know, it wasn't exactly much <laughs> consolation. But, yeah, but then, and then, like, I went to, you know, I, I would be in other countries, and, you know, I, I would be in other countries without people there. Like, I basically lived in Toronto without my family for two or three months when I was, uh, when I was 12, I think. 
Hmm. Yeah, I lived there. I didn't have any, any, I didn't have my parents. I didn't have any family members there. It was, maybe I was only there for a month or two, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I, I was basically living abroad with like a nanny. Wow. And yeah, and that's something that I realize now. And, and so I do think that that's kind of where, and that's also where the idea of me being independent comes from. I was literally thinking that where I was just like, no wonder you thought of yourself as so independent because in a way you were. Yeah. But it's also like, it's like adultifying someone who's not an adult yet. Yeah. And well, and I think that's why it was really hard to come back to, you know, Burbank, California, where suddenly, you know, my, my father was like, okay, but you can't cross the street by yourself. And you're like, oh, can I? You can't go on walks. Yeah. You can't, you can't do these things. And he was also very protective because of, because of the fame aspect. Yeah. I was yeah, a lot yeah. more famous then. So he was very protective of that. So, so like. The, the idea of me, like, going to, like, the, the Rite Aid by myself was, like, a big deal. Right. And, right. and, uh, so it was, it was really, it was really, uh, like, a, a really kind of big change. And I think that's why I probably got really tired of L.A. and I wanted to move somewhere else. Sense. Yeah. And I kind of figured out how to live in New York, although, and, and I, I did love it for a long time, but it didn't always make me the happiest. Yeah, I remember you, like, even at the very beginning, talking about how it sounds like there's this culture, like, I've never lived there, and mm-hmm. so people listening in New York are probably going to be like, whatever, LA girl. Yeah. Um, but it's like, it's it sounds like there's this culture of go, 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 go. Like, it doesn't sound like you'd have the downtime to, like, reflect yeah. on things or... Well, I mean, the, the great thing was I was never once bored. There you go. <laughs> I was never once bored in New York. I, I was I wasn't bored for years. But and as soon as I moved back to LA, I was like, "What is this weird feeling? Oh, I'm bored. I'm bored." And you can, I mean, in LA, you know, you 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 find things to do, but but it's not like New York where things just come to you, where things just happen. Well, and did people? You talked about like people recognizing you. Did people approach you in LA, but not New York, or did people just? not approach you as much once you They didn't approach me as older. much in New York. When they did, it was very specific. Like, it was always, like, a very specific demographic, very specific age groups, you Got know. It. And a lot of, like, retail workers, I think. I don't know. Maybe because they're all around the same age. That, uh-huh. And also because they interact with you one-on-one and they talk to you and, right. you know, they see your name and your face. So they'll say, you look familiar. Right. Whereas, whereas everybody else you just kind of meet in passing. You don't actually look at for very long. Right. Um, although, like, I do remember once, like, these two girls, like, seeing me, and I was, like, in a really good mood that day, uh, these two girls, like, looked at me on, on the train, and they, like, their eyes widened, and I saw them, like, whispering back and forth, and, and I think I, like, heard one of them whisper, like, Matilda to each other, and they were, like, being really shy, and, and, um, and I, like, was getting off the next stop, and I, like, I got up at the next spot, stop, and, like, right before I did, I, like, turned around and winked and just said, like, shh, and got off. Oh. <laughs> And I was like, and I was just like, yeah, that probably made their, you know, that made their day, I'm sure. That's so but, precious. But, but there were other times where I would like see a group of preteen girls on one train and I was not having a good day. And I was like, and I would move to the next train car because I was like, one of them's going to recognize me and I look like shit and I feel oh. terrible and I have a cold and I'm, I'm not, you know. So, but I also felt like, yeah, I felt like people in LA were more shallow and I felt really judged here. Mm. And I think a lot of that was wrapped up in you know, negative experiences in Hollywood too, which it's funny because a lot of my negative experiences in Hollywood weren't actually bad experiences on film sets mm-hmm. or bad experiences with producers and directors. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of them were bad experiences with like, you know, people who were casting me and such, but they were much more with media and fans. Interesting. And I think that people don't really realize that. Yeah, because I was thinking in the back of my mind while you were talking, I was thinking about when you said like you had bad experiences and you had said like that puberty was like a natural disaster. Yeah. I was like thinking about how now as a writer, like you're in control of your own narrative because exactly. you're writing. Whereas exactly. Whereas it sounds like yeah. at that time, other people were controlling your narrative. And yeah, really I really didn't like that. I really didn't like that. So I think that's why that's why I do that. Um, there is something that I there's stuff that I still that I miss about acting sometimes that I still think it's. You know, it's fun. And I, I, but I think also there's performing that I like, which is why, like, when I was in New York, I was doing storytelling a lot, which was a kind of a nice mix of writing and performing for me. You're writing and then you're acting at the stories out. And I feel like, I feel like in some ways that I was kind of, I was kind of, it's going to sound really pretentious, but I feel like I was a born storyteller because I really wanted to, I really, I just always wanted to tell stories. Like when I was little, I would, I would, my brother was telling me the other day that like he walked in the room, like I would, I would always singing 
And I don't know why, because like we were we were like a somewhat musical family, but we weren't like overtly so. Um, although my mom did introduce me to musicals at a very young age and I did love them and I still love musicals. What was your first musical? Oh God, I don't know. Probably, probably like Rodgers and Hammerstein kind of stuff. A lot of Rodgers and Hammerstein. And, um, and we did, uh, we did, um, so there was a lot of that. There was a lot of, our West Side Story was probably one of my big ones. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And I was, I, I remember being, it's kind of funny to me how I was always in love with like the the sort of like best friend characters. Like I remember being really in love with Riff. Um, <laughs> my brother says that I had a crush on Tony too when I was little, but uh-huh. I, I remember being very in love with Riff. He was uh-huh. my first crush. Um, I think I tweeted about that and Russ Tamlin was like, hey, that's me. Oh my God. Uh, yeah, which, as you can imagine, I was like, oh my God. I would be like, oh my God, Dr. Jacoby? Yeah, right? Oh, yeah, that that too, that too. Yeah, oof. So, um, so I was, I was, yeah, that was, that was a lot. Uh, but I, I think that, yeah, that was, those were probably my first, my first ones. I, we, we had like a baby book when my sister was born and I remember it said like, what's your favorite song? And my favorite mm-hmm. songs were all from like the sound of music Aww. and South Pacific and Cinderella and all those. See, it's good that we got friend Yenta because like cats was my jam. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know cats until I was like eight or nine, but then I heard the music and it's got stuck in my head forever. So yeah. 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 Apparently that was the first musical I saw and my mom had to uh, tell me that I should just, um, I could move my mouth to the song. <laughs> <laughs> but you couldn't sing them anymore. Yes. Yeah. So little Pam and the Pantages just going yeah. for it with the cats. <laughs> I I was I was apparently I was singing. My brother told me the story the other day. He said I I was playing with my dolls or my Barbies or whatever and I and I was singing and I was singing for like 4 hours straight. And he came in and he was just like, "Why are you singing so much?" And I said, "Well, I'm not singing. It's um, it's a story that I'm telling." You were you were just giving a Homeric epic. Exactly, I, epic poems. <laughs> I was an epic poet. And he said, and he was like, and he was like, "Okay, but 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 why are you going on and on? Like, why is the story go so long?" And he's just like, and I was like, "Because I want to tell stories." Aww. He said, and he said, "But people don't." And he said, "But maybe people don't want to listen to your stories for so long." And and I and he says that I said, "Well, yes, they will because my stories will be good." And that's like one of the first like and, amazing. And, and that's really nice because I don't remember myself having a lot of confidence mm-hmm. as a kid. So mm-hmm. I do think that it's kind of nice that I did. I had confidence. I have confidence. Speaking of musicals, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think that it is kind of funny that I that I had that. Uh, I did have that at least confidence in my storytelling abilities, and so yeah, so it feels like it kind of came full circle that. And I do feel like if there's one thing that I can do, I can kind of put a narrative arc on everything. Probably too much so probably i do that more than i should well it's also life. it's comforting to have a narrative to things because otherwise you're like what is this jumble of strange events that have yeah occurred? exactly exactly no i feel like i'm i feel like i'm always i'm always doing that i'm always like narrativizing everything yeah. well and in a way it kind of i was gonna ask like how everything you did was connected but that actually makes total sense yeah if what you are as a storyteller yeah that makes sense for writing it makes sense for advocating it makes sense for voice acting it makes sense for acting acting it makes sense for singing yeah and i mean i've seen you even in casual settings like be a very captivating storyteller yeah i kind of well thank you i, I feel like i kind of can't help it <laughs> like it's it's just <laughs> something that comes to me and my and my, my family, like, it's something that we see in my family a lot, too. Like, mm-hmm. we, my, my mom, my mom was very much a good storyteller, and my brothers were, too. And, mm-hmm. and they still would tell me some of the stories that were just, that are still some, like, the funniest things that I've ever heard. And I don't even know if the stories were that funny. I think they just had, they just had a natural talent for the pacing. But, like, my dad, my dad is, like, a really quiet guy. Uh-huh. But uh, every now and then, like, like, I think it was last, was it last Thanksgiving? Or it was, it was some holiday my dad just kind of came out with like a crazy story about how he um, he's an engineer and he was fixing a news helicopter. Like one does. For his job, he does. Yes. Because he worked for a news station uh, during the 1994 earthquakes. Oh my God. And, and an earthquake came uh, while he was fixing it and it lifted the helicopter off the ground while he was fixing it and put it back down. <laughs> And we were just like, Dad, oh we were just like, Dad, you've never told us this story before. And he and was he just, just like, casually had it in his back pocket for like 20 yeah, years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so that's, that's just kind of like, and that's the kind of thing. And he told it to us and, you know, he's, he's very, 
he's like, he's very quiet and he, he, he doesn't talk much, but every now and then he'll tell a story and we'll be like, what the hell? Like, where did that come from? (laughs) Or like, he'll tell us these stories from his childhood, like in upstate New York that are like straight out of like Stephen King's main stories. Uh And we're just uh like, whoa. whoa. So yeah. So I feel kind of like, I feel kind of like, you know, I, I was sort of genetically, you know, genetically predisposed to make up stories. And it pinged in my brain, like, do you think any of that is connected? Like, I think about the Jewish value of memory and yeah. about, like, because so much of our culture is, like, telling each other stories. And I was yeah. like, maybe that's who we'd be in, like, the post-apocalyptic, are we useful or not? Yeah, I feel like that's that's definitely something, sort of, like, keepers of memory or whatever, I think. And so much of it is is is, like, oral storytelling and arguing. My dad's not Jewish, but my dad is... My dad's side of the family is is um, is Irish, and there's a long history of Irish storytelling as mm-hmm. well. A lot of mm-hmm. Irish folk tales and such, especially like where a lot of his family grew up in um, in like 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 the the Mid Atlantic and Appalachian areas and stuff. The Irish populations there, like that's that's where a lot of American folk tales come from. Yeah. So I do feel like that's kind of something that that you know sort of is held held together and is like a thing. Yeah, and I feel like that that is sort of the thing, like the like the book people at the end of Fahrenheit four fifty one yeah. who go off and they they share the the stories. I remember I used to read like one of my favorite writers when I was a when I was a preteen was Bruce Coville, who wrote oh, I these read like any. you you might you probably have read some of his stories or have you at least seen some of the stories, but he wrote these like very like beautiful and progressive and moving stories. Like he wrote a he wrote a a book about a boy called Jeremy Thatcher Dragon Hatcher about a boy who. Um, who hatches a dragon and comes to really love the dragon. Eventually the dragon has to go back to its home world. And it's this really beautiful story about loss and grief. And I read that not long after my mother died. And I don't think I realized how much that book really helped me. Mm -hmm. You know, there was so much in it that was just about how, how, you know, something you love is never really lost. And, and, um, and they actually, and I remember there's actually like his father's a veterinarian and there's actually a golden retriever in it called grief that will uh, knock you down at the most inopportune moment. Oh. So, and that's a metaphor that I didn't understand until I read it a couple years later because I yeah. wanted to give it to one of my nibblings uh, and uh, to one of my, my siblings' kids. And they, but yeah, there's, but he would do like these collections of short stories and they would have like really like Jane Yolen would be in them and Janelle Simner and like Ray Bradbury would be in them. And oh, wow. he would do collections of, of, yeah, of like some really amazing short, short story storytellers. And, uh, and they would be really, some of them were really great, really scary, really beautiful. And I remember going like a Girl Scout campfire kind of thing and I was the one and I basically memorized these books so I just sat uh-huh. down and I started reciting them from memory oh my god you are a rhapsode there's, there's an ancient <laughs> Greek word for you really yeah yeah and and I think it was also we all had to have we all had to have names in the in the group like the Girl Scouts our Girl Scout troops we all had to pick like names for everybody mm-hmm. people were like people were like maybe you should be like storyteller or like mm-hmm. you know a, a less like culturally appropriative Sherazade Sherazade or something like that yeah, because I think about that that story helped you with the grief over losing your mother. And that's almost like what you're doing now, like in advocating for people and advocating yeah. for yourself. Like you're providing narratives and structure for other people. I, I hope so. You know, I really I and that's really why I think it's it's important for me to do that. And, and yeah, I do think the 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 narrative of finding a narrative is, <laughs> you know, it's that is what it is in my life. So yeah. I think that that's something and I do think sometimes I need to be careful that I'm respecting my own boundaries with it and I'm respecting other people's boundaries as well. But, but yeah, that's, that's something that's very important to me. And it sounds like that's really fulfilling. It is, it is. And, and, you know, it's not always, it's not always like found, like it's not easily, not always easily found. Mm-hmm. And it's not always something people want to pay you for. And sometimes I feel like it's not enough. Like I'm not doing enough for the world. I'm not doing enough for myself. I'm not doing enough to make money. I'm not doing enough to, to help others. You know, I, I always feel like I could be doing more, but I think that's, I mean, I think a lot of that is my own perfectionism and my own, you know, some, but, and, and, or maybe I'm just not, maybe I'm just not doing enough, you know, at times. So I don't know. I kind of go back and forth. Well, and it's like how to be kind to yourself during the times when like you're not doing as much. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I do also think that like, you know, we, we, we should, we should push ourselves to some degree. I think that there's, you know, there's, 
I don't know, like things that are sort of like, just like the idea of sort of like unmitigated, like just self-esteem and stuff kind of, kind of worries me a little bit because I feel like, I feel like it can lead to some like disappointing circumstances or it can lead to people kind of being, it, it can be dangerous, I think. Well, I think like holding the dialectic in your head of like doing too much and doing too little and mm-hmm. kind of ending up in the middle of like, well, it should even out to be doing just enough where you are accessing the things that are valuable to you yeah. and valuable to others. Yeah. But you're not either burning yourself out or resting on your laurels. And yeah, so it's exactly. Like this weird exactly. balancing act. And I mean, I don't, I don't think that the truth always necessarily lies in the middle, but I do think in this case, you know, it probably does. Yeah, it evens out because especially when you're talking about like having different health things, I think that people do underestimate that when either you encounter health problems or even different phases of your life, there are going to be times when you're going to be like, I'm super productive, I'm doing all the things. And there's other times where you're like, I'm not. It's, you know, it's really funny to me too, because, because my, when you're growing up, when you're on film sets and when I was growing up on film sets, which is, which is what I, I say that I did. There was always a lot of hurry up and wait. Mm. And that's, and it's funny to me, there's a lot of like sort of boom and bust and a lot of, lot of, you know, hurry up and wait. And there's a lot of like really intense focusing for a time and then, and then not focusing for a while. And I think, and I always say that it exacerbated my perfectionism being on film sets, but I also feel like it probably exacerbated my ADHD as well, because I think that that's Mm. kind of, that's kind of something that a lot of people with, with, you know attention deficit like disorders can can relate to is the idea of working really really focusing and then like not doing anything for a while and the kind of the distraction and then this and then that and and yeah that and so I feel like that is sort of that is something that I I you know that might have sort of exacerbated it too and then I would go back to school and be in this really regimented environment and and I could struggle in that. Yeah. And I remember my sister asking me because my sister is a really good student uh she asked me recently I was talking about how uh, most of the time I really didn't get good grades. Like, I think I got, I probably got better grades when my mom was alive. And I know I got straight A's in college for one semester. Uh, (laughs) And Anna, you know, Anna was like, why didn't you get good grades? She's like, you're smart and you work hard. Mm -hmm. Why didn't you get good grades? And I said, well, I, I was used to people doing things for me on film sets. I was used to somebody telling me it's this time now. You should work Mm -hmm. on this now. You Mm -hmm. should do this. I was used to them setting that regimen for me. I wasn't, I didn't know how to quite do it on my own. Oh, and, that and that's was a really totally hard. different skill set. It is. It is. And, and I said, yeah, and I, and I had, you know, ADD. It was, it was hard for me to focus on things. Well, and I think especially, uh, I don't know if you had this experience, but growing up in our generation as girls, mm-hmm. ADD was so underdiagnosed because like, for instance, my type is the inattentive type. So much like yours, it sounds like what you're describing is very similar to my work style where it's like nothing, 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 do all the things, nothing, 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 nothing. And they didn't really teach in school necessarily how to regulate that. And it just seemed like everyone else had that skill built in. And so I thought I was just maybe doing it wrong. And I, I didn't know that like... Uh, my brain was a little different. Yeah. Well, that's one thing that I think about a lot. And sometimes I wonder, I'm like, is this ADD or is this just overlap with OCD? Is this something else? Cause I've been, I've been diagnosed with, with, I was diagnosed with ADD. I know they mostly call it ADHD now, right. but, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I think I was also sort of the inattentive type, but I do remember like my mom, I remember my mom being in like a, a department store or fabric store or something once and her like, and it was a safe place. And she was like, can you just sit down here for a while? And I was like, sure. And I just sat down and I just daydreamed for like 45 minutes. My parents would put me in front of, there's this one spot in the farmer's market. Yeah. That on one side, there's a sticker store. And on the other side is the peanut butter shop. And so <laughs> you would just look at them. I would look back and forth and back and forth. That's amazing. Oh my God. My like I wasn't gonna go anywhere because if I got bored of looking at shiny stickers, I would look at the peanut butter churn. That sounds amazing. <laughs> it's great. It's still one of my favorite spots. Yeah, right but I think I do think restaurant. they were thinking of you know I do think they were thinking of things, and I do think that that you know I think there's a lot of talk of like toxic masculinity and stuff today, and I do think that a lot of this is you know I do think there's sort of misunderstanding of of you know I do think that a lot of times like 
boys need to get up and exercise, you know, or people with a lot of, you know, and I do think it looks, it does tend to look different in girls or, or yeah. people, people who are more feminine tend to express it differently. Well, in, in a way, like girls have a lot more social pressure because we're supposed to quote mature faster and things like that. So there's a lot right. of masking that's going on. Right. And, and I feel like a lot of the, yeah. And it's interesting too, because I, I feel like I knew, interestingly, I knew people who were diagnosed with ADHD or, or certain, certain, they were, they were described as like being non-neurotypical or they were diagnosed with ADHD or something. And then later on they would come out as gay or transgender or non-binary. Mm-hmm. And the other things that they had would kind of disappear. Yeah. There's an interesting, I need to research more of it because yeah. there's, it's the old statistics thing of like correlation is not causation. Yeah. There does seem to be a high correlation like they've already been studying the correlation with the autism spectrum and adhd because there are a lot of overlaps yeah but then about how that informs gender identity and sexuality is really interesting because there does seem to be a large overlap but it's like well why yeah i I mean overlap there it's it's fascinating to me yeah i think i mean it's it's interesting to me because i i mean i remember i was really depressed and I, and usually when I'm depressed, there's a reason for it. I, I was really depressed for no reason. And then my, when I came out to like my therapist, um, I stopped feeling depressed huh. and it was just like, it was like my, my, yeah. So that was, that was something, that was something that was really, yeah, that was, that was a, that was a kind of an interesting thing that happened. I don't know. I'm not even sure how we got onto this topic, but it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to my podcast, Mara. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's, well, two people with ADHD talking. It happens. Why not both? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you ever, when you are speaking about mental health advocacy, do you touch on issues of sexuality and coming out and things like that? Um, I, A little bit. Sometimes if I'm, if, if it pertains to that, if they ask me about it, I mean, I, I was kind of... I felt very uncomfortable about the way that I came out because I came out at a time, I came out publicly at a time when there was a lot of trauma and strife in my life. And mm. I, and I, I kind of wished that I hadn't come out publicly then because I don't think that it was really the best idea for me. Got it. Um, so I, I think that I, I wish that it, I had done it in a different way, but also like you can't change the past and also uh people have told me that i helped them come out to their families and friends and so that's really good that's in good. a way anyway but you know i i was i was accused of wanting attention it, it it was right after a tragedy so i was accused of you know getting attention after a tragedy there were people writing articles about it and saying that this was just me you know like like selling my brand or whatever wow. and yeah and wow. and 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 some of these people were straight and some of them were not saying these things. And it almost goes back to what you were saying to me about, like, the way that the media and fans kind yeah, of skew a narrative. They do. They do. Well, people, I don't think the media and fans realize how much, I don't think they realize the power that they have. I, I really don't think that they do. And, like, and, and it just really, it, it's really... I don't know. It bothers me a lot that that they they took that and ran with it because that was exactly what I did not want to happen. I did not want there to be that much attention. Mm. I didn't expect it to be to be news because I was just kind of like, who am I? I'm just a person. And and uh, and I, I I don't know. It was it was a very strange thing. So so for a while, I just kind of didn't talk about sexuality and orientation in general. But now I start talking about it more just because it's kind of like, well, this is just a part of my life. And I don't. And it's, it's more just like me talking about crushes I have on people or me talking about mm-hmm. these kinds of things. With mental health, sometimes I will touch on it, but also I do feel kind of relatively new to the LGBTQ you know, community. And I think that there are a lot of other people who can touch on mental health in the LGBTQ community better than I can. So, so I do touch on it if it's asked, but it hasn't been something that I have really talked about or addressed like to certain audiences before. Got it. Yeah. Got it. That makes sense. Yeah. Because I would guess also people would, like, it was interesting when you were talking about, like, how the media treated you, and I was just like, and also when you said, what's your process? Because I was like, oh, this is probably a really weird interview. (laughs) 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 I mean, it's fine. It's fine. I also prefer ones that are are talking. And I also prefer ones that aren't going to be, uh, there's a lot of places where they'll just kind of expect you to come on and, like, share your life story. 
and and will pry like for more information. There's a lot of podcasts you'll go on where people will really push you to talk about secrets or something like mm. that, and they won't really respect your boundaries. And I feel like that's something that that has always bothered me. Got it. You know, I I don't always feel like I'm really will, willing to disclose these things. And I've also had ones where where people will do uh, will will be great, and you'll say I'll say like, hey, I think that we should probably take this bit out, and they will, that's and cool. it'll be wonderful. So, uh, so that's, that's really nice, but I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's, I think that people don't really realize. And I think that also with the advent of social media, I don't think people realize that fans are the media Mm -hmm. and I don't think people Mm -hmm. realize fans have so much power these days, so much power. It's incredible. Um, Amanda Palmer writes about a lot is like that fans are the media essentially. They are, yeah, and and I mean, it's it's so, and I mean, her fan base is particularly like like they are they they are very very strong and very very powerful. They are very intense. They are a very intense bunch. It's true. It's true. Um, but there's but there's a lot of this, and I don't I don't think people even realize. I mean, think of how much pressure people have put on studios to do this or not do this with Star Wars or Marvel movies yeah. or this or that, you know, and 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 video games and all of these things where it is like. And I understand because I think a lot of these things are very much, are very much, um, you know, they are people's, a lot of them are, they have to do with people's beliefs. And a lot Mm -hmm. of times, and a lot of times things like music and things like video games are such like, they they feel like such personal mediums. Yeah, that people, it's interesting when you were talking about the way that like fans can in a way control or influence the media that comes back to them. It's almost that now we have this reciprocal relationship because for a while people would say like, Oh, like my identity is that I listen to this music or I watch yeah, these movies. Yeah, exactly. And now those same people then can turn around and say to the people creating the music or the movies, like, this is what I want or this is what I don't want. And there's a lot of, I think there's there's this weird, I think, I think there's a lot of times people have passionate feelings about something and those passionate feelings can go from loving to hating something or hating to loving something very yeah, quickly. Yeah, I feel yeah. like to me, it feels almost like same, same thing. It's just a, yeah. it's just a. It's just like a place to put your passion. Yeah. And so, and and I feel like that's because that's, I've had that too, where I was like, I feel very strongly about this person or this thing. And I try not to hate people that I don't know unless they've done something terrible. Yeah. Unless they've like committed an atrocity. Exactly. Then I'm like, okay. Yeah. Then I'm like, yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm going to, I'm going to hate you because you've done terrible things. Right. But like, otherwise, otherwise I try not to hate anybody that I don't know. I can be annoyed with people, but even then that's pushing it for me. Yeah. Uh, because I feel like a lot of times if you don't like somebody, it says more about you than it does about them. Well, and it also, it, it shows like kind of a personalization of a relationship that isn't necessarily reciprocal. Like someone yeah. who maybe like dislikes your work or dislikes what you have to say doesn't yeah. actually know you. Well, exactly. That's why it says and more so about you. Like, it yeah. says more about you. And yeah. that's another thing. I also really, I also really, really don't believe that you can be in love with somebody you don't know. Right. I really don't believe that. And I know people don't. Some people might disagree, but I don't believe that you can really be in love with somebody that you don't have uh, an interpersonal relationship with. Well, because then you're just, in a way, at least the way I feel about it is that, like, you're kind of, you're casting something onto exactly. them. Exactly. It's like, it's, you're casting your emotions onto them, but without having to deal with what the reciprocal emotions Exactly. Exactly. So, so I don't believe that you can really, you know, you, you can only really be in love with the, the image that you have of them, which is why, like... I have a strict DFYF uh, policy. Don't fuck your fans. <laughs> and I think that people should too. I think that it's different when yep. if they're like a fan of your uh, your work, but they're able to see you as a person. Yes. And you're on the same level and you have, and you have a mutual respect. Like yes. I've, cause I've had people who'd be like, Hey, I really like your writing or I really like the stuff you did. And I'll be like, Hey, I really like the stuff you did too. Yeah. And then you, know? you can, yeah, there's also, there's a power differential. I was talking yeah. with, um, uh, I want to interview him too because he's the only person I know who does like literally one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Sanja Larke is this great Norwegian musician, mm-hmm. awesome person. And I remember him saying that like he's never taken, as he put it, taken advantage of the fan relationship. Yeah. Because he's very affable and he's a lovely person, but it's like people can cast fantasies on people they don't know. Right. Especially if someone creates art that they like. Yeah. And it'd be very easy to take advantage of that goodwill. And I really respect that he said, like, it made me feel uncomfortable. I never wanted to take advantage of that. It would feel like a lie to me. Yeah. And it would make me feel very uncomfortable. So so I, I think that I really, like, that's not something that I could do. Uh, I, I it, it wouldn't feel right. I mean, especially since I was, you know, 
every now and then somebody will be like, hey, I loved your movies when I was a kid. Can we date? And I'm like, that's, no, that's weird. <laughs> Is that like if people would want to date, what's his name that played Casper? Oh, God, Devin Sawa. I mean, I've talked to him about this. Yeah, uh, I've, I've, he and I have talked about this before. He was like the first person that popped in my mind because everyone was like obsessed with Casper. And I'm like, oh, my God, what minute? Well, he's what only must like, it be like now for him to be like, uh, excuse me, what? Well, he's, he's married, but like, but like, yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely like this sort of idea of like, you were my first crush. So, you know, there's this kind of thing. Yeah. And I mean, and to some degree, I kind of get that. Cause like, I'm like, I'm like Twitter friends with, uh, the, the guy that my, uh, mean girl had a crush on in high school. Oh, so I, so every now and then I'll just be like, take that, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm not going to say her real name, but I'll be like, I'll be like, you know, I'm trying to think, what's a good mean girl name? I don't know. There aren't really any, are there? Um, yeah, I'm just like... Heather. I'll do Heather just because it's... Just it's, because it's a Heather's, Heather's, yeah. I'll just be like, take that, Heather. When, like, yeah, when when he messages me. <laughs> You're like, that's right. Yeah, that's right, Heather. But yeah. like, but but it's stupid, you know? It's, yeah. it's a very, but it's, but it's, yeah. And that's, and that I think is something that... But yeah, there's there's a power differential there, and I don't think it's fair to the fans, and I don't think it's fair to the person that's in the position of power right. either. But right. yeah, I really don't believe that you can, I mean, I really don't believe that you can really love somebody without knowing them. Um, and I think that like, that's why I feel like people who are like, I'm in love with like somebody who doesn't know I exist. I'm like, you're not, you're are, like, you? are you? Are you? You know, I, I think yeah. that you can be in love with people who don't love you back in that way, as long as you're like friends or you're something like that, like that's possible. But I think that it has to be, there has to be some, there has to be a dynamic. Yeah. And some of it almost goes back to like talking so much about like dynamics and about storytelling. Mm -hmm. It's almost like maybe when you said like, Oh, I'm a natural storyteller. Like you seem to be able to engage with yourself and other people really well. Yeah. Well, thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And cause I was thinking about like, well, how would you describe to someone like how to engage in what you do. Cause I asked some of my other guests about like, Oh, what advice would you give people? Um, but it sounds almost like with yours, it's like listening to yourself and other people is what enables you to do what you do. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I, I do think that I need to be kind of more careful with myself though, because like sometimes I tell myself a story about myself or I tell myself stories about other people and I need to be careful because sometimes that can be proven wrong. Mm, you know, got it. Yeah, when you have to go back and revise. Like, yeah. It's hard to revise a story sometimes because you exactly. get very attached to the yeah, stories we have. Exactly, exactly. Especially when I'm like, when I'm like, you know, when I'm when I'm sad about something or something like that or or when, when I feel like I don't like somebody, I'll just be like, oh, well, they're just this kind of person. This is mm-hmm. just who they are. Or mm-hmm. I'm just this kind of person. And that's not, yeah, it, it doesn't quite feel right. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's seeing like the gradations. Yeah. If you could go back and tell your younger self something, what might you tell them? Oh God. I, I mean, I think about this a lot, but, but it really depends on the day. Sometimes I'm like, just focus on writing, just focus on this. Sometimes I'm, I'm these things. I think one thing I would, I would tell her is to listen to the people that are, are telling you things because your cynicism does not make you wise Mm. because I was a very, very cynical preteen and teenager. And I want her, I, I wish she could know that her cynicism isn't what makes her smarter than everybody else. Well, first of all, that she's not smarter than everybody else. And, you know, the people, even the people that she doesn't necessarily agree with or the mm-hmm. people that aren't, quote, smarter than her or as smart as her, quote, you know, they they will, there are still things that she can learn from them. Got it. And they, she will especially learn things from the people who think differently than she does. You that's know. a valuable lesson right there. And especially, I mean, as a teenager, that's it's challenging to learn from people who yeah. aren't in alignment with you because at that point, all of your emotions are going haywire. Your cynicism does not make you cool. Your cynicism does not make you smart. Your cynicism does not make you interesting. Your cynicism definitely does not make you more attractive to the cute boys and girls around you. <laughs> and it does not make you happy. It does not really do anything. It's, it's, your cynicism is a, is a protective thing. It's like, it's like a blister. You know, it's what your body forms or your, your mind forms, your personality forms to defend yourself. And that's, it's, it's a, yeah. Got it. So that's, and, and, you know, to, to keep that in mind and yes, skepticism is healthy. Cynicism is not. I like that. Skepticism. Yes. Cynicism. No. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cause in, in the telling of even all the things that you're doing, 
it sounds like the more open you are to learning from new things from yourself yeah. and from others, that's when it sounds like all of these things start blossoming and happening. It's true. And I am a naturally skeptical person. And I actually think that that's a good thing. I do think that that, that having a little bit of doubt is a good thing. I think that doubt is like salt in that way, you know, <laughs> that it kind of balances everything out. Imagine you as like the little meme. like Yeah, the sprinkling doubt of bay. doubt. Well, yeah, I think because I do think that people don't question themselves enough sometimes. Right. And, and I think that doubt can lead to self-awareness. Mm-hmm. But a pinch of it, but you, but you also don't want too much salt. Yeah, then it's just gross. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then it's then yeah. So I think I think the skepticism and and cynicism are two different things. And I yeah. think that rejecting something out of hand and and rejecting things. You know, my my dad would tell me things, and I would just be like, well, what does he know? And it's like, well, he knows a lot, first of all. And, and you never know when he's going to tell you a story about a jumping helicopter yeah. during an earthquake. Yeah, exactly, exactly. He's he's full of surprises. So so yeah. So yeah. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us for this week's episode of Why Not Both. If you liked what you heard, please make sure to like us and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also come hang out with us on social media. We are at WNB the podcast, both on Instagram and Twitter. This season, we are brought to you by Under the Radar. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print, music, and entertainment magazine and website. You can find them at www.undertheradarmag.com and feel free to support them on Patreon. Extra special thanks to our producer, Laura Studeris, who has been absolutely amazing. Thank you again, and I look forward to next week's episode. (laughs) 